when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Let me set the scene. It's the morning of the 2nd of February, 2022. In the Shakespeare and Company Reading Library, Alice McCrum, Lex Paulson and Adam Biles are gathered around a small rectangular table. Upon it, several copies of the capital B, big capital B book. Several smaller books, most of them about the big book, capital B, capital B, hoist three microphones to mouth level. Cables tangle around cups of tea and glasses of water and whiskey. Spread out between them, a bowl of thick goblet soup and plates laden with the inner organs of beasts and fowls, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices fried with crust crumbs, fried hen cod's rose and grilled mutton kidneys. Such a Leopoldian feast can only mean one thing. Mm. It must be time for Bloomcast. Mm. Alice, tell me, what's your delicacy of choice from this awful rich buffet we've prepared for you this morning? Also, I'm a vegetarian. Ah, nuts. <laughs> no! <laughs> Verboten. <laughs> so um, I'm walking straight past this particular book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And feeling slightly sick as I do. I'll have one inner organ. Just one, maybe that uh-huh. uh, the, the kidney, just for okay. the sake of that tang, that okay. special tang. Yeah, and I think I'm going to go for the, the gizzards, only because I've eaten gizzards twice in my life. Once when they were prepared lovingly by a friend and they were one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten mm. and once when I prepared them myself and they were one of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten <laughs> uh, but seeing them on on the page um, as Leopold fantasizes about his breakfast um, yeah just reawakened that um, that memory so gizzards for me kidney for you and a hard pass from, um, <laughs> from Alice um, so as I said it is February the 2nd 2022 it is mm. the centenary of uh, the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses, the book we're all gathered here to to celebrate. Um, Lex, can you just tell us a little bit about the day itself? So I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, just a very short passage from Kevin Birmingham's uh, book, the most dangerous book, the battle for James Joyce's Ulysses. So, on the morning of February second, nineteen twenty-two, Sylvia Beach went to the Gare de Lyon and waited for the Dijon-Paris express train to pull into the station. After the doors opened, she saw the conductor making his way through the harried morning travelers with a bulky parcel. Later that morning, when Joyce opened the door to his flat, Sylvia Beach stood proudly in front of him with his birthday present, the first two copies of Ulysses. Beach placed one of the copies in the window of Shakespeare and Company, Primed by newspaper reports about the impending publication, the news spread overnight that James Joyce's Ulysses had arrived at last. The following morning, a crowd formed to gaze at the mighty tome in the front window. It was an imposing book, a bold blue cover, 732 pages, three inches thick and nearly three and a half pounds. People could only speculate about the rumored scenes in the final chapters. When Beach opened the shop for business, the crowd rushed in to receive its long-awaited copies. But Ulysses, she tried to explain, was not yet published. Only two copies had been printed, but this only led everyone to claim the display copy (laughs) as they became more insistent. Beach grew afraid they were going to tear the book from its binding and divide the sections amongst themselves, so she grabbed Joyce's novel and hid it in the back room. So, um, in honor of Sylvia Beach, I brought us a nice, a very light uh, morning whiskey. Um, so, if you wouldn't mind. I can't even. D- define morning yeah, whiskey. Yeah, what is a morning whiskey? 
<laughs> to Sylvia. James. To Sylvia. To Sylvia. And to James, his birthday, James. And to mm. James Joyce. Happy birthday, James. Happy mm. birthday, James. 140 years old mm. today, James Joyce. So you're telling me that actually February the 2nd isn't a publication day. What the hell are we doing here? <laughs> what the hell are we doing here? The first two copies of, of the book arrived, but um, it was on a subscription basis. So Sylvia Beach, uh, in addition to being a wonderful bookseller, was a very savvy marketer of Ulysses. And Ulysses had appeared in short bits in um, a periodical in America, a little review, of course, had been uh, censored in the US and hadn't even uh, bothered trying in Ireland uh, in the UK, kind of censored uh, uh, before it was even before it was even uh, attempted to be published there. And um, in, in France, they found this wonderful old artisanal uh, publisher in Dijon um, to produce the copies. And uh, they were doing the galleys and proofs uh, literally into the last weekend. Uh, but they had set the date of Joyce's 40th birthday, February 2nd, 1922. And that's when the first two copies of Ulysses saw the day. 40th birthday. Okay, I'm going to have a little bit more of my morning whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and also, just to say, if, you, if this is a morning whiskey, I dread I to do. think what an afternoon or evening whiskey is for you. And midnight whiskey. Come, come with me to floor. Scotland, my friends. <laughs> we will see the midnight whiskeys. Okay, now we are going to have to <clears throat> rattle through the Bloomcast today. I mean, mm. uh, by which I mean it's not going to be an hour and 40 like the last one, but no. more likely an hour or an hour and a bit long. Tidbits, as, uh, as Bloom would we're say. We're moving at a trot. And the reason we're moving at a trot is, of course, Lex, you have to run off. And why is that? Well, uh, at 12.22, um, in about an hour's time, uh, a train will be pulling in from Dijon into the Gare de Lyon, uh, containing a number of Joycean well-wishers from all over France, including, I think, the from beyond uh, our borders here, to uh, come into Paris to celebrate... Uh, 100 years of the publication. So they'll be coming in wearing the usual uh, 1904 garb, I guess in this case 1922, maybe we'll which have some flappers. Is, which is what? Um, well, uh, long <laughs> flowing, flowing gowns and, uh, and boaters and uh, Bloom's, you know, black suit and derby hat. Um, and uh, there might be the odd suspender or garter, I think, as you call them. Um, and, um, and so we're going to be singing. We're going to be singing Happy Birthday to Joyce. We're going to be singing Love's Old Sweet Song and maybe one or two others of the, of the songs from, uh, from the book. And I've been, uh, I've been impressed into service uh, oh, as, the, as, the merc- as the mercenary pianist uh, oh, yeah. with one arm tied behind my back. Yeah, God. You... Sure. <laughs> no one believes that one. <laughs> so before we head on into Calypso, let's talk a little bit about um, what our listeners have said to us so far. Um, Alice, Lex, have you heard anything from them? Well, so I've heard um, from two people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody called Barry Norton is listening along uh, wearing his Shakespeare and Company tracksuit top. So hello to Barry Norton. Mm-hmm. Somebody called, whose name I'm not sure, uh, but his Twitter handle is at Matt's Hog Mark. Okay. Um, mentioned that he has read the book, tried to read the book twice and hopes to read the book uh Fully this time, the third time, accompanied by our podcast. I've heard from my mother. <laughs> a fan or not? A fan. Big fan. <laughs> okay. Big fan. It's a relief. And from two friends, uh, Augustus O'Connor, Rupert Stonehill, both of whom have tried to get through the book before and are going to retry. There's a mm. lot of retrying, mm-hmm. I think, um, and using this opportunity to kind of bolster their attempt. So hello to all and... Again, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, that's Ulysses at ShakespeareAndCompany.com for any questions, comments, insults or judgments you want to send our way. Lex, have you heard anything? Yes, um, from a couple of old classmates, actually. Um, they noted that uh, so some of my high school classmates, we had freshman English together, and they too, the moment you say Homer's Odyssey to them, will say, Andromoyanipe Musa, Polutropanos, Melapola, because of our um, heroic 
uh, dauntless um, uh, teacher, Ms. Denise, Donna Denise, uh, who taught us the Odyssey and uh, who um, got us to put that ancient Greek uh, phrase so firmly into our subconscious that it will never be dislodged. So to Stuart Macker, Rich Spidell, George Masri, uh, thanks for uh, echoing uh, a bit of that ancient Greek and to Ms. Denise, uh, a far better teacher than Mr. Deasy and as good a teacher as, as Stephen uh, and Bloom. Um, you're one of my heroes and thank you. Oh, that's really nice. And um, thanks for making me feel bad about the fact that none of my friends have reached out. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're listening, but are just too modest to comment. Um, I'll repeat that email address one more time in case. Ulysses at, <laughs> Ulysses at Shakespeare Shakespeare and Com- Come on, guys. <laughs> or else just say your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's um, move on. So. So this podcast is being released on Saturday, the 12th of February. So 10 days after we're recording it. And by which time our listeners, if they are listening along, will have already heard uh, Calypso, uh, the section known as Calypso. So in this case, read by three extraordinary readers, be- begun by Eddie Izzard, uh, followed up by Lola Peplo um, and concluded by Nathan Englander. So three very different voices. Um, and each of them, again, like our like our readers uh, from the, the previous week gives their own spin, their own perspective and their own unique uh, interpretation of um, of the chapter and uh, of the voices of Leopold and um, Molly Bloom in, in the Calypso section. Um, so do check them out if you haven't. Now, I'm going to give a quick recap of Calypso. Um, I think Calypso, it's probably fair to say, is one of the least esoteric chapters of Ulysses. So I'm going to try and rattle through it as as quickly as possible. But I think there are some things that do need to be pinpointed and do need clearing up. So when we're talking about Calypso, before us answering where we are, we should probably ask when we are. Because once again, it is 8 a.m. June 16th, 1904. Only we're not at Sandy Cove now, but we're on Echo Street, uh, number seven to be precise. Uh, Today, it's the address of a private hospital. But in 1904, it was the site of a three-story brick house occupied, at least in the universe of Ulysses, by one Mr. Leopold Bloom. We meet Mr. Bloom preparing a tray of breakfast things, lovingly, fastidiously for his wife, Molly, while also mulling over his own culinary options and chatting with the cat. Realising they have nothing in but bread and butter, he climbs the stairs, says to Molly that he's going round the corner and will be back soon, and does she want anything? Molly pronounces her first word of the book, mm. He takes his hat... <laughs> Sorry, can we get that again? That would be a... Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> MN, how are we doing that? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of an ambiguous, uh, is it an affirmation? Is it a negation? I don't know. Well, and compare it to the last word that she says in the book. Spoiler alert! <laughs> okay. Bloom takes his hat, peeps inside the headband to make sure a mysterious white slip of paper is present and leaves the house. As he strolls to the butchers, he indulges in various Orientalist daydreams of Orne Street, mosques and dulcimers. He crosses paths with the publican Larry O'Rourke, considers discussing the death of someone called Dignam, but then only exchanges a greeting. In the butchers, he waits behind and discreetly ogles a young woman buying sausages. He leaves the butchers, heads home and notices a cloud that may be familiar to attentive readers passing in front of the sun. When he gets home, he collects the mail. One letter addressed improperly to Mrs. Marion Bloom, which he realises at once is from a certain Blazes Boylan, Molly's singing partner, she's a soprano, and another letter from their daughter Millie. He gives the Boylan letter to Molly, who tucks it under her pillow. As Mr. Bloom makes the tea and cooks the kidneys, he glances at Millie's letter before taking the breakfast tray upstairs. Molly and Bloom discuss the Boylan letter. It seems that he's coming for a rehearsal that afternoon, as well as the funeral of Dignam. And then Molly asks Mr. Bloom, who she calls Poldy, to explain the word metempsychosis to her. He does his best. 
Drawn downstairs again by burning kidneys, Mr. Bloom can finally have his breakfast. As he eats, he reads Millie's letter properly. He reflects with a certain melancholy on her progression to adulthood before being distracted by a gentle loosening of his bowels. He makes his way to the outhouse. There he reads a short story and we discover Mr. Bloom has, or at least had, certain literary ambitions, although clearly nothing to rival Stevens. Just as Bloom is finishing up, the bells of George's church chime. Mm. Lovely. So that is Calypso. Mm. We have a question, though, um, because we are meeting Leopold Bloom for the first time. So we've mm. met Stephen, we've met other characters. I suppose the opening question, Lex, Adam, who is Leopold Bloom? Well, <laughs> um, so I have, a, I have a, a nice little précis here from, uh, from Frank Budgen. Um, there's a sudden break with Stephen after the end of the third episode. Uh, a man of different race, age, and character comes into the foreground of the book and almost without a break stays there until the end. He is Joyce's Ulysses, the Jew Leopold Bloom. Bloom and Stephen are opposites. Bloom is while Stephen is becoming. He leans to the sciences, Stephen to the arts. He is by race a Jew, is equitable in temper, humane and just, whereas Stephen the Gentile is egotistical, embittered, denies his social obligations and can be generous but is rarely just. But there's a difference of dimension and substance as well as of character. Stephen is a self-portrait and therefore one-sided. Bloom is seen from all angles as no self-portrait can be seen. He is as plastic, meaning as flexible and multidimensional, as Stephen is pictorial. Joyce, um, Joyce did say, um, I think, I think it may, may have been to Budgen or, or to Sylvia Beach, um, that writing the beginning of Calypso was like opening a window uh, mm. and getting getting fresh morning air. Mm. Why? Because up until the end of Stephen's walk um, on on Sandy Mount Strand in in the third chapter, um, he had been living kind of inside Stephen Dedalus's head mm-hmm. uh, since the first pages of Portrait of the Artist. You know, all through that book, Portrait of the Artist, uh, we see the world through Stephen's eyes and the first three episodes of Ulysses. And Stephen is is a genius, but exhausting as many mm. geniuses are. And uh, and Bloom, as you said, this is one of the least uh, difficult chapters to read. It you know Bloom, like Buck Mulligan, in a sense, bounces fully formed uh, off the page uh, with uh, with his cat, with his morning ritual, um, and um, and Joyce uh, says uh, at one point that uh, how a man uh, eats his eggs can tell you more about him than uh, how he goes to war. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think you know my my feeling about Bloom is that you get almost everything you need to know about Leopold Bloom from the very first page. Mm. And what is that? What do you get from the very first page? Well, I'm curious. What did you guys get from the very first page? Okay, so for me, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that idea because I think you you certainly get a a rounded image of Bloom, or, or, or rather, I, I think Bloom leaps off the page, as you say, and he comes in a way like straight after um, this rather esoteric, rather um, dense period of inner monologue from Stephen. And as you say, it's kind of it's it's refreshing. It's sort of uh, it feels crisp. It feels clear. And yet I'm not convinced that Bloom is as complete uh, a character as 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 Bajan says, actually, I think particularly having having read the book before, I think we we are going to go on a journey with Bloom. And while all of the kind of constituent elements of his character may be there, I think there are certain things, there are certain sort of ambiguities about which of those constituent elements is going to come to the fore and is going to end up uh, defining Bloom. Um, And I think one thing that illustrates that is the amount of different names we have for Bloom Mm. in 
this chapter and the chapters that we're going to, dis going to discuss today. So I, I made a quick list. So to Joyce, well, I say to Joyce, let's say to the narrator, because there is some discussion to be had about whether the narrator is actually James Joyce. But to the narrator, he's always Mr. Bloom. OK, so we've had Stephen Daedalus referring to Stephen in the first three chapters. Now we have sort of, I guess, a certain separation. It's sort of he's using the, um, you know, the, the title of address, Mr. Bloom. Um, to Molly, who we meet uh, in, in in this chapter, he is Poldy. So it's uh, you know it's a it's a it's a term of it's a term of affection. Um, how exactly that affection is manifested is something we'll we'll come on to to discuss. In the letter he receives from Millie, of course, he's Pappy. So he's a he's a, he's a father. Pappy, which is sort of an interesting one because it almost has kind of a Central European. You know, I didn't call my mm. father Papli, and I don't know of any Irish people that, that do. I don't know. I don't think it's Irish. It felt kind of Hungarian to me, like Paprikash or something uh -huh. like that. Um, so you can also get a sense that he's maybe from a, has some kind of distant roots uh, as well as, um, as well as being a father and a, yeah, a husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also think that's, that's something to do with the, it, it shows us the relative closeness of their relationship as mm. well, because it is, you know, it is not the, perhaps the formal mm. address, address from a, exactly. from a child to their mm. parent. It's obviously, it's, it's, it's a, it's an affectionate nickname. Mm. Um, later, and we'll talk about this, he's referred to by somebody else as Henry. Also later on, we'll talk about this, but when he's among other men, mm. equals is not necessarily the word, but he's referred to simply as Bloom. And then finally, um, and this is only by implication, but when, Molly receives a letter from Blazes Boylan. It's addressed to Mrs. Marion Bloom. Now, at the time, the correct form of address would be to Mrs. Leopold Bloom. So in a way, another implied name for Bloom here is perhaps Mr. Marion Bloom. Um, so something about the, the dynamic of their relationship has been has been uh, implied, perhaps, um, by this. So for me, these are all of the um, the different threads to Bloom that we're presented with in these first sort of 10 pages mm. that we meet him. So the idea that then we have a complete picture of him mm. is something, um, something, yeah, I would take a little bit of issue with. Mm. What do you think, Alice? Well, I think, I think two things. Um, the first thing I think is that uh, a, a kind of interlocutor who I think we missed last time and who I'd really like to talk about today is Aristotle. Mm. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of get back to his distinction between fiction and history. Um, Kind of later on in the episode but certainly one of his most famous quotes is we are what we repeatedly do and so there's a sense of as lex was pointing out how one does make eggs eat eggs or how one exists in the world says a lot about one's character i think what struck me more about this opening um passage is is certainly bloom as a character but also the space um, that his presence opens up for other kind of consciousnesses. And I'd like mm. to take this opportunity to talk about the animal consciousnesses, uh -huh. and specifically the cat consciousnesses. Can I just interrupt you to say, <laughs> while we're talking, Aggie, the bookstore cat, is sitting and purring on Lex's Seemingly lap. pretty content. Mm. What do you think, and, and as I was preparing my notes for the podcast, she was kind of rubbing up against me. Um, Aggie knows that this episode's a little bit about her too. Yeah. She totally does. Um, and so many of you might have remarked the the kind of surprising and and lovely arrival um, of the cat. So the cat says, Mignow. I don't know how you would say that, Adam. Um, 
<laughs> and then <laughs> I've become the authority of strange <laughs> of, combinations of, strange of letters. Um, Have you any eggs? <laughs> <laughs> and Bloom and Bloom speaks to her, and she said, "He says, oh, there you are.'" And then she says, "Purr, scratch my head, purr." Um, on the next on the next page, we get. Uh, Grr. <laughs> and um, so at the bottom of page uh, 65, my page 65 in the Penguin edition, um, Bloom says uh, kind of to himself here, they call them stupid. They understand what we say better than we understand them. He kind of contradicts himself. And I looked at the footnote because I like Lex to become kind of fastidious about checking the <laughs> footnote. Apparently this comes from an essay that Montaigne wrote called Apology for Raymond Seabond. And in the essay, Montaigne writes, when I play with my cat, who knows but that she regards me more as a plaything than I do her. In other words, um, how, how are we to know or not know to what extent um, animals and maybe other kind of living creatures, plants, are investigating us as much as we are investigating them? And I would like to take this um, actually very seriously in the sense that um, if... Leopold Bloom is Joyce's Odysseus um, from the Odyssey. Uh, there's a kind of famous metaphor. Uh, I mean, there are many kind of famous metaphors and similes, but Odysseus is uh, described, as many of you may know, as the man of many twists and turns. He's mm. also described as the complicated man in Emily Wilson's new translation. He's also at one point um, likened to an octopus. <laughs> and so this is him uh, in a shipwreck. Um, just as when an octopus is dragged from its lair and pebbles cling to its suckers, so pieces of skin were to torn from his strong hands on the rocks. And I would like, um, kind of in the spirit of the cat consciousness, uh, to take this comparison you can hear. <laughs> Aggie purring. Aggie's approving your, your I, analysis. I would like to take um, this comparison between Odysseus and the octopus very seriously because there is something about... Um, uh, the, the the octopus that opens up, um, I think, Leopold Bloom's uh, character in the sense that um, when we're thinking about stream of consciousness, um, we might remember that octopuses do not have any kind of stable shape or color or texture. So mm. they're constantly changing to match their surroundings. Um, and also we're going to talk about this in the outhouse scene, but this idea of embodied cognition, the idea that the mm. physical body itself mm. is intelligent. Mm -hmm. And this is true of octopuses because like humans, they have a centralized nervous system, but there's no clear distinction between the brain and the body. Um, their neurons are dispersed throughout their body. Uh, two thirds of them are in their arms. Their arms can actually taste and smell and exhibit short term memory and they act intelligently um, on their own. So all of that is to say that I think um, Leopold Bloom is is octopus like. And I want to, I want us to uh, keep the kind of octopus um, idea in the back of our mind as we continue to make our way through the arrival of Leopold Bloom. Mm, it's a wonderful point. I, I just picked up a book called The Extended Mind yes. um, by Annie Murphy-Paul. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think what we're learning about uh, octopus consciousness and animal consciousness is also shedding a new light on human consciousness right. and the importance of uh, embodied cognition, situated cognition, and distributed cognition that we inherited this idea from Descartes that we're all a perfectly encapsulated <laughs> mind, you know, in a in a body, and then it's our kind of pure spirit that that does the thinking, and each one of us has our own. Whereas um, both in studies of of animals and um, 
and studies of, of people, what we're seeing is that, as you said, uh, we think with our bodies, we think in motion, we think with tools, uh, in writing, in, in sketching, uh, that these are acts of cognition. Some people say, uh, make this argument, others disagree. But um, there's a lot of research in the last 25 years that suggests a greater and greater role for what you talked about, embodied cognition, the role of our bodies, situated cognition, the role of places, and distributed cognition, the role of thinking uh, as part of a group. And I, I work in the field of collective intelligence. This is something I I think about a lot. And Bloom, I think, is a wonderful emblem mm. of all three, right? He's in his body. He's so comfortable with his body, unlike Stephen. Uh, mm. He is constantly moving, right? And he's thinking in motion throughout the entire book. And the place of Dublin is part of his consciousness. Mm. And he's constantly interacting with other people. And we see how his thoughts, in a, in a literal way, mm -hmm. um, seem to be shared uh, by Stephen, seem to be, seem to kind of ricochet yeah. throughout other characters mm. in the story. So this idea of embodied cognition, situated cognition, and distributed Distributed cognition are, are everywhere in Ulysses. That's a very interesting point, and I think particularly compared to to Stephen, like I think I suppose the Stephen we've got to know is a very cerebral character, and um, I, I guess a kind of not necessarily your ultimate Cartesian, because I wouldn't say there's necessarily um, sort of a, a, a sort of a, a, a strict rationality to the way Stephen mi Stephen's mind works, but he's very he's very mind orientated, like many artists. Like many artists. But if we're saying that Bloom is more, he sort, of, sort of succeeds in this more kind of embodied consciousness, mm. why then do I get the impression as a reader of a profound loneliness? Yes. With well, Leopold Bloom, so this, this, think... even compared to Stephen. Like Stephen, there's definitely a loneliness, there's definitely an isolation. But there's something in these chapters we're going to read like, wow, there is, Leopold Bloom is isolated. He's, he's cast away in, a, in very <laughs> much like, a, like Odysseus. <laughs> And, I, I don't. I don't want to push this too far, but octopuses are very famously solitary creatures. Well, there you go. <laughs> no. So here's why I want to make briefly the case that that you get a lot about Bloom uh, in the first page. So his his commitment to these morning rituals, right? He's writing her breakfast things on the humpy tray. That it's almost as if the anticipation of the breakfast is is the point, um, and and his service to his wife. Um, the words kindly and curiously in, in describing his, his uh, glance at the, at the cat. I think in those two words, kindly and curiously, you basically have uh, the two core uh, um, qualities of, of Bloom's personality. He sees the world from the cat's point of view. So this incredible mm -hmm. empathy, this kinship with inanimate objects, but also maybe because he's lonely, because mm -hmm. he can't mm -hmm. connect in the same way with the other people in Dublin because he's uh, only partially Irish in, mm -hmm. their, in their eyes, even though he's converted to Christianity. Um, his, he was born in Ireland, but his uh, his connection to uh, a Jewish father, he has a Christian mother, but his connection to a Jewish father who was born in Hungary um, makes him a marginal figure. Um, and so uh, Declan Kybert, who we mentioned quite a lot last um, in last episode, uh, he... We also mentioned his twin brother Declan Kibbert. <laughs> Kibbert Kibbert. I think it's I think it's hyphenated actually. Um, so he he points out that unlike Stephen, who seems to choose his isolation, um, uh, Bloom seems to have his isolation forced upon him. Um, mm. And then he kind of answers his own observation, saying, "But actually, he seems to enjoy thinking at an angle." to his community, mm. right? That he has this sort of, uh, he looks at things in a very unconventional way. He's constantly posing questions in a way, and we'll see this in Hades, that, that no one else is. So I, I think some of those uh, very crucial things, including the two secrets of the house, um, the jingling of the bedstead, the jingle yes. represents uh, Blaze's Boylan, mm. um, and this white slip of paper, quite safe, which of course is, is the letter from his kind of flirtatious um, uh, semi-affair. Uh, these are the two secrets of the house. And so we get quite a lot in these, in these two uh, first pages. 
So as I said in the uh, precy of this is section, the um, we do have our, our first interaction bet- with uh, with Molly Bloom as a character, and we see um, so we see, we meet her. She's in bed. Bloom. Uh, brings her breakfast, and she asks him about a very precise concept which she has come across, and that concept is metempsychosis. Um, certainly not a concept I was familiar with before <laughs> reading Ulysses. Uh, so, well, reincarnation. Right. Reincarnation, right. I mean, okay, it, so we'll tell, we'll tell us, what is metempsychosis? Metempsychosis, and now I really am turning into Lexia. Do you want to read the bit of the book? I have the reading. Okay, good, do it. Um, well, this, this is the footnote. Mm. So metempsychosis officially... Uh, is the mystical doctrine that the soul after death is reborn in another body. In ancient India and in the Orphic cult in ancient Greece, rebirth could also take place not only in another human body, but um, in any other animate, so animal or vegetable, I suppose not mineral, body. Hmm. Late 19th century um, theosophists modified metempsychosis with a concept of progressive evolution. They held that the human soul could only be re- reincarnated in another human body and denied the possibility of the souls migrating down the scale as evolution. So therefore, it's a, it's a progressive mm. um, movement. They also held that the purpose of reincarnation was evolutionary to test and refine the soul through a sequence of human embodiments until it emerged as a pure, pure spirit. spirit. Mm. And Adam, when we had spoken about this episode um, before we recorded it, you had said that in a conversation with George Saunders, mm. um, that in some ways the the drafting process of writing, um, you could make a parallel there between this idea of kind of refining the soul. Can you talk about that? I think it's so Yeah, lovely. so what George was talking about, so this is from his book, uh, Swim in the Pond in the Rain. So where he's, it's essentially his... Um, his book about teaching the Russians to his students at Syracuse. And he's writing about Tolstoy um, in this particular section. And he talks about how there seems to be a conflict between Tolstoy, the the writer who is full of empathy and compassion and a deep-seated morality, and Tolstoy, the man who, mm. you know, to, to put it bluntly, acted like a bit of a bastard mm. at times. Mm. Like, and, like Joyce, well, Lex, like, you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Saunders is theory, um, which I think is, is really interesting, is that, and Saunders, of course, as a, as a writer, is a big advocate of drafting and redrafting and redrafting and redrafting. And his idea is that in the process of writing and in the process of drafting and redrafting, even us kind of, all of us as flawed human beings can attain something, can reach something which is in some way higher, more noble and more moral than we encounter in our daily lives. And if there's one thing we know about Ulysses, it's that this mm. book was drafted and redrafted and redrafted. <laughs> mm. And so and yet it smacks of daily life. It smacks of, of first thoughts, unfiltered mm. thoughts, unadulterated ideas. There's another part of this, of this little exchange that I just find wonderful. So Molly is... Um, not looking for a seminar in ancient philosophy. She's reading kind of a trashy novel and and uses her hairpin, rolls over, grabs the book, um, you know, met him what? Here she said, what does that mean? He leaned downward and read near her polished thumbnail, met him psychosis. Yes, who's he when he's at home? So we, we, <laughs> we have, you know, we're, we change registers from this kind of, you know, couple early morning, you know, tell me what this word means to the deepest um, uh, roots of esoteric mm. Western thought. And of course, Bloom is a reincarnation of Odysseus, 
right? Mm. So Bloom is explaining what metempsychosis is, unaware, of course, that he is an ex- huh. maybe the best example of it in all of Western <laughs> literature. But of course, he's just explaining, you know, the word to his wife. Uh, you know, another interesting thing you mentioned the Orphic cult. Um, so the Orphic cult came around the same time as the the theories of reincarnation um, in India uh, were starting to to spread wildly, and it came from deep suffering of the first class of of slaves that were forced to work these silver mines in Greece. And so the idea of reincarnation came, one could say historically, from the from the uh, uh, collective suffering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bloom is a Jew. He ha- is part of this heritage of, of collective suffering and, and displacement. Um, and, and an idea that you could be reborn or that you could be progressively refined um, through um, uh, universal time um, was a, a very interesting potential salve and, and healing force. So there's so many, th- you go from this register of, of a couple in bed at 8 a.m. to the depths of, of mm. you know, the human experience, all in five lines. Uh, Although let's be clear, I mean, Bloom, in certain ways, he is the kind of refined everyman. He embodies a lot of us. He embodies a certain uh, morality, a certain outlook on life, which perhaps Stephen doesn't. Mm. And yet he is also a deeply flawed mm. individual as well yeah. as as we all are. Mm. Mm. Um, Why don't we go to the outhouse? Then? Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, well what, what, set the scene. <laughs> in this set, conversation. Because <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned here in your in your um, synopsis that his his bowels are loose. Yeah. So you know. So 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 he is he's come down. He's eating breakfast. Um, and yeah, he feels as as one is wont to do in the mornings a gentle loosening of his bowels, and he takes himself to the outhouse. One thing I find interesting um I, I suppose to to set set in contrast about this section is that Joyce is very um as I, we discussed in the previous episode this kind of this kind of leveling like nothing nothing is verboten to Joyce so you know he can go from high flying kind of philosophy to Mr Bloom having a poo and there's no kind of you know there's there's no distinction made between the two no that, hierarchy of experience. no hierarchy right and yet interestingly in Bloom's inner monologue he doesn't refer to it himself. He he almost doesn't think of it. So there's the one moment where he he's he's worrying about being um, being interrupted uh, on the on the toilet, and he says, "Hope no ape comes knocking." Just as I'm, and he can't. He so even though we're going to get the the situation, we're going to get the context. We're going to see Bloom on the toilet. Bloom himself will not articulate the thought of defecation and i think that's a kind of an interesting contrast because mm, mm, he is in his world that there's still a bit of embarrassment um imposed on him about the body um uh Kybert says you know he he is shown shitting the great uh, alliteration thank you <laughs> professor Kybert. not in order to shock the reader um but rather to dramatize a man who quite unlike Stephen, feels utterly at home with the workings of his own body so right i think there's something wonderful for our age where you know, many people who have felt embarrassed and ashamed of their bodies are now, some for the first time, able to say, you know, what their body really is, mm-hmm. who they really are. You see these uh, posters around Paris uh, just this week of this uh, lingerie company, Dargiling, who mm. is showing people who are not traditional, uh, have yeah, traditional yeah, models' yeah. bodies. So this is the direction I, I hope that, that society is going in, mm-hmm. less shame and less disgust. Mm-hmm. And you could say this is the, the first defecation, uh, narrated defecation <laughs> in all of Western literature. Like, this no, is like a, the nose picking. This is like the nose picking. <laughs> yeah. This is an important milestone right. in, uh-huh. in right. fighting this disgust and taboo about the body. So Joyce sure. was was uh, I think um, important. And now, Alice, you're a Beckettian, right? Now, this is <laughs> this is something which you know you talked about last week about yes. Joyce throwing the ball and Beckett yes. hitting it. Yes, Surely, yes, this yes. is something. It, it it certainly is, Adam. And and for me, why do we go? Why do we go to the outhouse? Um, 
Well, we go to the outhouse to see him, as you say, go to the new, but also uh, to see him use the newspaper that he's reading to wipe himself mm. afterwards. So this is the official mm. kind of the two sentences. He tore away half the prize story sharply and wiped himself with it. Then he gutted up his trousers, trousers braced and buttoned himself. And so this um, is a thread that Beckett is going to very much take up um, as soon as uh, he starts to write his trilogy. Um, so it, the trilogy is Malloy, Malone dies, the unnameable. And we get this very early on from um, Malloy in, in the first novel, this kind of explicit assault on language itself. Uh, Malloy, the protagonist, uses written records such as newspapers, both to, I'm quoting here, wipe away pieces of stool and to insulate himself against the winter's cold. So there's this kind of, there's a practical sense to mm. the paper and to, and to the written word um, in, in Joyce as in Beckett. Um, and actually, I, I just wanted to read this as well. So kind of later on in, in Malloy, um, uh, he's described... Um, as wrapping himself in, in swaths of newspaper under his grey coat. Um, and he talks about very specifically the Times Literary Supplement, the TLS, and its <laughs> never failing toughness, its um, impermeability. He writes, even farts make no impression of it. <laughs> so in other words, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this is Joyce um, assaulting kind of just, not even, not even a kind of highfalutin um, uh, newspaper, and Beckett is going to pick up this through line and, and use it to kind of attack lofty reviews, literary criticism, highbrow journalism um, for both characters, Malloy and Bloom. In some, in some senses, they don't really care uh, about the newspapers it's, and, the, and the kind of words. It, they're, they're thinking about these um, as, as material tools mm. and, and physical aids for bodily functions. Do you mm. think it's the, in that first reference particularly is a direct nod from Beckett to Joyce? Or? Possibly, mm -hmm. possibly. Um, I, mean, I don't think we should underestimate how big a deal this was mm -hmm. when people read this for the first time. This was yeah. you know, as shocking mm. as, any, as any you know, movie or documentary that, mm. that, you know, that we've seen in our lifetimes. I mean, this, mm. was, this was not done. Mm. Um, and so I this think was not done. It was not done. <laughs> Um, as uh, as Ezra Pound probably would have said, mm. um, although he was a big defender. So can we do a couple of noticeables before we go yeah, to yeah, episode go five? It. So mm. um, the two songs that Molly Bloom is preparing mm. with her manager um, and partner <laughs> in several senses, uh, places Boylan. Is um, he really her manager? Is that how he's yeah. described? Well, he's the organizer. Actually, mm. no, e even better. Um, uh, someone asked Bloom. Someone asked Bloom about the concert tour. Who's getting it up? Uh, and mm. so um, yeah. there's there's quite a lot of um, a lot of layers to uh, mm. to language to getting here, it up to getting it up. And <laughs> so um, so uh, what are you singing, Blue Mass Molly? La Chidarem with J C Doyle. She said, and loves old sweet song. So loves old sweet song uh, comes uh, all the way through the book, and and we'll be singing it in just a, a few moments at, mm -hmm. at Gare Lyon. But La Chidarem, you probably know it, even if you don't think you do. It's Mozart. Um, it goes La Chidarem la mano la mi di si. So it's a it's a it's an aria. But what, what is it about? Well, it's about um, a woman being seduced, a woman named Zelina being seduced by an aristocrat. And it literally means, there you will give me your hand, there you will tell me yes. Mm. And if you know uh, where we're going yes. in Ulysses, <laughs> yes. um, no, these yes. are very significant words. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's both an aria that everyone would have known, but Joyce is also winking yeah. a little mm. bit about the book. Okay. So, and then and, the very last thing. And just say ahead. about Love's Old Sweet Song, um, listeners to this podcast will have heard a reinterpretation of that uh, as our opening theme by mm. uh, the jazz musician Alex Fryman with 
uh, the singer Flora Hibbard um, coming together, which um, I'm trying to convince him to record the full version. So mm. watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> and so and then on the second to last page, as uh, just after he reads um, Millie's uh, letter and he's sort of regretting that he's missing this kind of rite of passage of Millie's life as she's now becoming a woman and, and you know, being independent, her first job as a, as a photo assistant. And uh, Joyce says, a soft qualm regret flowed down his backbone increasing. Will happen, yes. Prevent, useless, can't move. And of course, Odysseus is stuck on Calypso's island for seven mm. years. He can't move. And useless is a nice play on Ulysses. Mm. So Ulysses mm. can't move. Mm. Um, so another little noticeable mm. thing. And that was mm. it for me. And of course, that resonates with Hamlet and the inertia. The inertia, and exactly. Possible yeah. uses. Yeah. Knowing that these, these, these women are going to transgress in some way. You know, mm. the, the, the daughter, um, you know, her first boyfriend and the wife uh, is, is having an affair and he mm. uh, can't stop it. Yeah. Should we move on? Yep. Book five. <laughs> Let's do it. So at, um, a, at a trot. Yeah. <laughs> at a trot. So uh, episode five is called the Lotus Eaters. Why? Just to say, we've been talking about the outhouse. Maybe this is a very specific British slang to have the trots. Is yes, yes, to, to be uh, uh, ardent in one's visits to the outhouse. Indeed, <laughs> ardent um, and frequent. So <laughs> at a trot, indeed. Let's move on to book five. Um, not to be too scatological. So we're going, we're going, we're staying in the body here, but going to a, a different appreciation of the body. So mm. um, in in the Odyssey. Uh, one of the first um, stops, so Odysseus is able to free himself from Calypso's island, and then at his next stop, uh, the um, at the island of the winds, he um, t- tells the king of the winds about his uh, his his uh, trip from Troy, and he mentions one of the first stops was at an island where um, the whole population of the island was under this narcotic effect of this flower, the lotus flower that they had eaten, and so this this chapter we see narcotics um, mm. in, in all their forms. Bloom is on is on the street in Dublin. Um, he's doing a few errands, but really not not very, I wouldn't say goal-directed in this in this chapter. He's sort of wandering. This is the first kind of wandering uh, through the streets of Dublin. He stops at Sweeney's Chemist and buys um, uh, a bar of lemon-scented soap. And he stops in a church, All Hallows Church, uh, to watch people praying under the stupefying effects of church Latin and the rituals of, of the Catholic Mass. The great opiate of the masses. Um, and so, uh, and then at the end of this chapter, he runs across a, um, a, you know, one of these sort of downwardly mobile Dublin types, uh, Bantam <laughs> Lions, who is looking for a bet uh, to put on the Gold Cup race. So this is a big horse race happening today. And uh, Bloom has his, uh, has a, a little um, a flyer for a visiting priest who's talking about, uh, you know, converting the heathen masses, another kind of, of narcotic. And he's, you know, crumpling this up and he's about to, uh, to throw it away. And, um, and he, you know, Bantam Lion says, oh, throw it away. And Bantam Lyons thinks that he's giving him a racing tip on a horse named Throwaway, uh, where Bloom, of course, means nothing of the kind, but this is going to cause problems for Bloom <laughs> later in the day. Um, so that's the recap. So why mm. don't we do uh, a first question? Um, I think this is uh, you, Alice. And the first question we had um, that we're going to broach uh, is, what is the point of an interior monologue? Mm. Right. So Bloom is Bloom is in his own head and speaking to himself. And this is something that that, again, does not happen much in Western mm-hmm. literature. Up to this point, Jane Austen was a big pioneer of free indirect speech where you have narration that is partially in the head of the 
um, of the of the character. Uh, certainly, Virginia Woolf will be a, a major pioneer of this in Mrs. Dalloway. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, some people think that she kind of rewrote Mrs. Dalloway uh, a little bit under the influence of, of Ulysses, although she mm-hmm. famously didn't have a high opinion of Ulysses mm-hmm. when she first read it. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, the boundaries of the inner life and the outer life, mm-hmm. the boundaries between characters and their author are breaking down. So let's get back to the octopus on this, right? Right, so, exactly. Um, the you. octopus let's. allows us to... to I never to, would have assumed sucker, this sucker. would be a direction we to, take, to, but I love to it. To deconstruct, right, the boundaries <laughs> of, like, where's your brain? Well, octopus right. says where you think your brain is is not where the octopus <laughs> thinks it is. And, of course, the boundaries between our thinking and the thinking of people around mm, us porous. are also porous. porous. And so the monologue, I think, yeah, you're, I wouldn't have put it this way, but the mm. octopus is a great... Uh, weigh in to the porosity, how how porosity, how yeah. much um, fluid interaction there is between our thoughts and the world around us. Oh, yeah. I, this this um, I, I think what rung true for me uh, to answer the question about what is the point of the interior monologue is not necessarily what is the point of it, but how um, in a kind of contemporary context or looking at it with a contemporary gaze, you can see how the arrival of essentially technology and social media might kind of fill in the cracks of a kind of stream of consciousness. Mm. Um, and mm. it was it was quite alarming for me to read it in real time in the sense that thinking about um, this idea of the attention economy, you can see how the arrival uh, of this of this kind of notion of the attention economy uh, will very easily capture one's stream of consciousness. And it's Bloom's, it's Bloom's profession, let's not forget. He's, right, he's exactly. an advertising man, so he's exactly. thinking about how to get people's attention all the time, which exactly. is the world that we live in today. Totally, and I wanted to bring in um, William James, who's a real hero of mine, <laughs> philosopher, historian, um, psychologist who wrote at the end of the 19th century, the principles of psychology. And he's really one of the first people to theorize and write about this idea of the stream of consciousness. He wrote that the stream of consciousness then does not appear to itself chopped up in bits. Such words as chain or train do not describe it fitly as it presents itself in the first instance. It is nothing jointed, it flows. A river or a stream are the metaphors by which it is most naturally described. Mm -hmm. And as a counterpoint to this idea of the stream of consciousness, he talks about attention. Um, And this is, I I think, what struck me is kind of like entering into the world of Leopold Bloom's mind is thinking about this idea of attention. So James writes, millions of items of the outward order are are present to my senses, which never properly enter into my experience. Why? Because they have no interest for me. My experience is what I attend to. Mm. Only those items which I notice shape my mind. Without selective interest, experience is an utter chaos. (laughs) Interest alone gives accents and emphasis, light and shade, background and foreground, um, intelligible perspective in a word. It varies in every creature, but without it, the consciousness of every creature would be a grey, chaotic indiscriminateness, impossible for us even to conceive. Mm. It makes me think when, when the few times I've tried to, to meditate, mm. uh, to quote Vipassana, <laughs> Buddhist course once, very unsuccessfully, um, <laughs> you, realize, you realize the kind of the, how cluttered our, mm. our thoughts are. Mm. And, you know, Bloom's, Bloom's, the description of Bloom's um, thoughts, it, it, it feels so true mm. that we always are kind of halfway through a thought when something else comes in and yeah. something comes in completely uh, unawares. And, um, 
And but he's a fantastic noticer mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. He doesn't seem to be like we are with social media, kind of the, the prisoner of of that, his of his kind of stream of consciousness right. or trying to display for others mm. how cool his stream of consciousness mm-hmm. is by tweeting mm-hmm. it. But but rather <laughs> kind of enjoying the world and enjoying his experience of the world in a way that he doesn't need these narcotics. So getting back to kind of this question of, mm. of narcotic, you know, we see the role of drinking already. Mm. You know, he, he's at the pub and he gets that, that sour smell of the porter. And, uh, you know, Kyberg calls the, the Guinness and communion wine, the two drugs of Dubliners uh, juxtaposed. Um, and I think so that there's, a, there's another question I wanted to kind of ask, ask the, the, the group is, um, the role of trauma mm. and, 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 and narcotic together, right? That he has to relive in his mind. Again, this doesn't seem to be chosen, but he's thinking about Ophelia's suicide in Hamlet and mm-hmm. he thinks about his own father. Now, again, we see a correspondence with Stephen Dedalus. His father, Rudolf Virag, Virag is kind of the Hungarian equivalent of the, of the English word bloom. And so he anglicizes his name when he moves to Ireland, uh, dies and, and is a, is a, commits suicide. Uh, and we don't know yet why he commit why Bloom's father commits suicide, but Bloom's thinking of it clearly has a very dear relationship and close relationship with his father. As Stephen sort of rejects his his mother, who tried to make him something he wasn't, um, Bloom clearly has very a deep fondness for his father and an unresolved um, feeling uh, of loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, but you know, rather than try to um, dope himself. Through drink or dope himself through the you know, rituals of, of the Catholic Mass, um, he instead goes and takes a nice bath. Right. Mm. You know? well, and, and there's also the loss of his son. Right? Yes, and the loss, and, and and the so, loss of his child. And that's, yeah. and that's what I wanted to really pick out in the James quote because, in some ways, I kind of disagree with him in the sense that we don't really see his description. Um, of stream consciousness um, in well we do and we don't right so in in his description of attention he says my experience is what I agree to attend to well this idea of consent Mm. is really interesting because as Lex was kind of pointing out we can think um, that uh, we're agreeing to Mm. what we attend to and then things like this happen which is um, uh, basically the memory of the death of of Bloom's son just Mm. reappearing out of nowhere and this is this question of of, that you had posed, Lex, about trauma. Well, trauma, uh, kind of like the old speech that we were talking about last time, seems to be rattling around in these characters and mm. it just emerges mm. at spontaneous moments. As it is for all of us. Right? As it is yeah, for yeah, all yeah. of us. All of us who have suffered through a trauma, right. we, we carry it with us. So, and so, both Bloom and Stephen do that all and, day long. And, and so here it is on page 80 in real time. Mm. Uh, remember the summer morning she was born, and so he's talking about his daughter here, um, but so quickly it devolves. Remember the summer morning she was born, running to knock up Mrs. Thornton in Denzel Street. Jolly old woman, lots of babies she must have helped into the world. She knew from the first, poor little Rudy wouldn't mm-hmm. live. Well, God is good, sir. She knew at once. He would be 11 now if he had lived. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Look yeah. how quickly that, that memory just... And that trauma is at the root of, of his problems with Molly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or one of, the, one of the really important contributing... Uh, um, you know, facts about his the deterioration of his married life that he hasn't slept with his mm-hmm. wife, um, or hasn't consummated uh, sexual relations with his wife in ten years uh, since the death of their <clears throat> of their infant son. Um, maybe we we can do a, a noticeable before before wrapping up this chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go first. I got one. So too. yeah, so a, a great image that um, that I, I I love, and I think it was uh, maybe Blamiers or or, or Kybert that that uh, drew me to this. You, uh, you know, Ulysses, of course, is a warrior, and Bloom is is a, a sort of a pacifist 
uh, warrior of of uh, democratic Dublin, mm-hmm. and he strolls through the city with a rolled up newspaper and his and his lemon mm-hmm. soap uh, in his pocket, so that the, the, the sword and the and shield and, the, and his lucky potato, <laughs> um, and uh, which is which is you know uh, briefly uh, uh, abstracted from him, and he gets it back in, in Cersei. But no, but I love this idea of the newspaper as the modern man's sword, right? Uh-huh. It's the kind of the flow of information, right? Is yeah, on the, yeah, in, yeah. in our right hand, and the soap, which is you know the, the emblem of all public health and. God, mm-hmm. we've lived through a lot of that in the last two years that, you know, the, the soap as our shield mm-hmm. representing all the, the kind of the affordances of, of, of modern medicine and the newspaper as our sword, you know, this flow, this onrush of information. Knowledge and, and sanitation. Knowledge and sanitation. <laughs> what, what greater metaphor for the modern world? And Bloom is, is carrying these things into battle in his, mm-hmm. in his day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then why don't you go ahead? Adam? OK, so uh, firstly, just about the, uh, the soap, one thing I have to say that I remember the disappointment, Marina, that we don't actually go to the bathhouse with with Bloom. There was something, there was an anticipation of that scene, which I was, uh, I remember when I first read this book 20 years ago, of being geared up to, for some reason, I'm not sure exactly why, to to be with Bloom in the bathhouse and not getting it was, um, yeah, was felt to me... uh, yeah, I felt oddly disappointed, although I can't quite say why. The thing I was going to raise, though, and this connects the the situation with, with Molly um, and also brings us back to this idea of, um, of inner monologue kind of interpolating us and not necessarily in a way that we understand at the moment is when one thing that Bloom kind of notices, um, he's, he's talking, he, he's, he's noticing, um, he sees some horses and he's talking about them having their 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 um their noses in in nose bags chomping on oats and then he says still they get their feed all right and their dos gelded too a stump of black gutter percher wagging limp between their haunches might be happy all the same that way and i think there's something about sort of blooms uh, as you say you know him and molly have not uh had sort of full uh, complete sexual relations since the the death of rudy yet that we have already seen with bloom ogling uh, different women at different points. There he is still definitely is a man of desire. He's, exactly, and there's something uh, about that reflection. You know, the horses, the girls, desires his wife. Happy, and still desires his wife. He's you know yeah. kind of checking his wife out in in, in bed. Um, let's. Well, why don't we do that? This little bit of the end, the very end of <clears throat> of the chapter, mm. which we get as close as we can to him actually in 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 the in the bath. His vision of of again how to how to make yourself feel good without narcotics, right? You know this this uh, you know. Um, but little I, scene, the hammam. Well, and, and yeah, but just before you read it, I would I love your thoughts on. So maybe he's not doping himself, but as an advertising man, he's doping others. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we feel about that tension? It's tension. <laughs> <laughs> and as we'll see in Aeolus, there's a lot of tension to go around mm. in uh, in the mm. windy the windy world of, of of newspapers. That's a good teaser for for, okay. for episode okay. episode seven. Watch the space. Watch the space. He foresaw <laughs> his pale body. Reclined in it, the hammam, at full naked in a womb of warmth, oiled by scented melting soap, softly laved. He saw his trunk and limbs rip-rippled over and sustained, buoyed lightly upward lemon yellow, his navel bud of flesh, and saw the dark tangled curls of his bush floating, floating hair of the stream around the limp father of thousands, a languid floating flower. In the interest of stream of consciousness, can I do some notables that aren't directly in this uh, yes, specific please. passage? Stream away. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, um, the, the two kind of uh, parts that jumped out at me were this idea that um, not only does trauma rattle around inside of us, but also references that we've learned maybe mm. at school um, or kind of in childhood. So these two phrases jumped out at me when he's sitting down in the, in the outhouse. Um, 
he he starts to repeat himself the king was in the counting house and mm. then cuts himself off and then there's another point where we just get the phrase on earth as it is in heaven and it's this idea that these prayers and these um childhood rhymes that we've received as children mm. that mm. that speech that st- stays within us mm-hmm. and it comes out again at interesting and surprising moments and of course refers back to the very beginning of portrait of the artist as right. well mm. right. where they sort of childhood rhymes are what kicks off out. that novel exactly well, so should we do Hades? Go for it. Should we descend into the underworld? <laughs> okay. okay, so here's my, here's my synopsis. Feel free to add in as, um, as I, I think it's fairly unjust that the, the first time reader is... is, 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 is <laughs> we should have given you Calypso. <laughs> <laughs> do the synopsis. Um, but from what I've gathered, the episode begins at 11am outside the house of the deceased Paddy Dingham. In Sandy Mount, and we note that he died of alcoholism. Uh, he died specifically of a seizure related to alcoholism. Um, and so, a group of guys, uh, mm-hmm. Bloom, um, Martin Cunningham, Mr. Power, and Simon Dedless, who of course is Stephen's father, they're entering into the, the carriage, uh, which will follow behind Dingham's hearse. Um, and essentially, much of this episode is them in uh, the carriage kind of moving through the streets um and in a similar way you know in the same way the kind of stream of consciousness is the movement of the mind here it's it's almost like a double movement because there's a movement of the mind within the movement of the carriage and so you mm. it's it, it is this movement that provides the kind of fodder for their thoughts anyway they're en route um here are some kind of standout moments in in their journey uh so bloom and not simon his father they see stephen uh, Daedalus, uh, which kind of provokes a conversation about um, Stephen's friend, who we met uh, previously, Buck Mulligan. Um, Simon begins to kind of complain about Buck Mulligan, uh, <laughs> threatening um, to write to his aunt. So here we get this idea of letters again. Uh, they pass two by Blazes Boylan, who we've also mm-hmm. met, uh, the uh, manager. Suter. Capital M <laughs> of uh, of Bloom's wife um, for affairs, right? Um, and so again, here, here seeds are sown. We we see uh, Bloom's reaction to to seeing um, Blaze Boylan, which is very uncomfortable. There's kind of tension in the carriage. Um, he's flustered by this coincidence, and and then I, I suppose there there's a discussion about uh, suicide in general. So mm-hmm. we mentioned. Um, Bloom's Bloom's father's suicide but at that particular moment the other men in the carriage don't well I think Cunningham knows about the suicide Mm -hmm. but the tries to change the subject exactly the others don't he's he's kind of fairly sensitive then they arrive they get out um, then then there's the funeral Mm -hmm. would you like to say more? no I think it's it's great that gets us going and so the real one question we all had or I certainly had is who are all these people? Who are all these people? Who are these Lex. men? Um, I defer to you. So, so Fra- Frank Budgeon's men, book. Men, men, um, men. Frank Budgeon, again, James Joyce's um, drinking companion and, and one of his closest friends in Zurich. Um, he writes, uh, most of the people belong to the poorer class of Dublin citizen. Hardly any of them are what we'd be called working people. That is to say, there are no plumbers, carpenters, or railway guards in regular employment among them. Nearly all are of the lower middle class. 
in dire poverty if they've lost their jobs or property, but a shade above the well-paid working man if things are going well with them. The comfortably connected Buck Mulligan is an exception. Apart from Mulligan, all the students are of the hard-up or stony-broke variety. <laughs> Bloom canvases for advertisements. Tom Kernan is a traveler in tea. Martin Cunningham has a good job in Dublin Castle, which is sort of the administrative building of Dublin. Uh, I thought it was like, is he a tour guide? No, it's actually, he was like a clerk in like a law office in Dublin Castle. Simon Dedalus, without property or position, can only with difficulty give his daughters a shilling for food. Cowley is dodging the bailiffs and Dollard lives in a home for gentlemen who have seen better days. The rich bourgeois and governing patrician as also the pure and simple wage worker play no great part in the book. And I have to add, there's this little portrait, uh, thumbnail portrait of Simon Dedalus that, um, that uh, Budgeon includes. So Simon Dedalus, of course, based on Joyce's father, John Joyce, uh, the original dowardly mobile archetype in, in the book. Simon Dedalus is described by his son in a portrait of the artist as young man, quote, a medical student, an oarsman, a tenor, an amateur actor, a shouting politician, a small landlord, a small investor, a drinker, a good fellow, a storyteller, somebody's secretary, something in a distillery, a tax gatherer, a bankrupt, and at present, a praiser of his own past. Mm -hmm. So um, a great little little uh, portrait of the uh, father as an ineffective man. So there we go. Mm -hmm. Should we talk a little bit about Bloom's position amongst these men? Because we've already seen him um, with Molly and we already have questions about uh, the, the, the sort of the hierarchy in their relationship. And certainly um, with the sort of the uh, addition of Blazes Boylan, it seems that um, that Bloom is perhaps, uh, in so, and, and, in, and in the fact that Bloom is sort of very uh, obviously sort of subservient to Molly in different mm. ways. Uh, I think there's definitely um, some sort of question of hierarchy there. But then we're seeing Bloom in another context amongst these men. And... I don't know, for a, a, a sort of, it seems sort of distressingly familiar, this kind of scene about the way that when you get a group of guys together, sure. how that hierarchy asserts well, and, and we had mentioned at the beginning that Bloom is operating in some ways at an angle. So mm. the question is, in what is the angle in this situation? Right. Well, he's not a, a, he's not a clubbable fellow. You know mm. what I mean? He's not a, a guy's guy yeah, in yeah. that sense. He's rather feminine and kind of sensitive and, and charitable and kind. He tries to tell this joke about this father, Reuben J. Dodds, and his son, his son who jumps in the river, assumably, you know, presumably to, to, to kill himself, um, but uh, is saved by a, a boatman. Mm -hmm. And uh, Reuben, his father, gives a florin, which is, you know, like a little coin. Uh, and and his joke, Bloom's joke, is essentially hijacked by first by mm -hmm. by uh, Cunningham and then by Simon Dedalus, who gives the bon mot at the end. You know, one one and eight pence too much. Uh, you know, to save the kid's life. So um, even when Bloom really tries to fit in, he doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, later on when people are buying each other drinks, you know, Bloom's not a big drinker, as we've uh -huh. seen. You know, not a narcotics guy. Mm -hmm. uh, loves the things of the body and and uh, and you know loves his burgundy with gorgonzola. So he'll take a drink now and again. But you know, the, the main way that the guys, <laughs> um, the guys, you know, show show their their guyness to each other by buying each other drinks. Bloom doesn't play along mm -hmm. in that game. And you know, he is he is Jewish. He and talk um, about that. What? It's really important, his, re his religion. His religion. Yeah. yeah, there weren't very many Jews in Ireland. Mm. Um, there were something like, I saw the census figures, something like 3,000 Jews mm. in all of Ireland in 1904, mm. which was a country of several million people. Mm. Uh, in fact, Ireland, interestingly enough, peaked in population in the 1840s before the famine. Mm. Uh, and even now is not at its peak population mm. as it was. So anyway, so there were very few Jews. Um, they mostly were in um, kind of professional 
um, positions. Um, and uh, so I think he was more of like a, an oddity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people didn't know what to make of Jews, except that the Catholic Church and the faith uh, preach that, you know, the Jews are sinners against the light, as Mr. Deasy, the teacher, says in episode two. So Jews have this, you know, opprobrium. But we're getting right at this beginning of the 20th century, this beginning of this n- nastier, more violent um ideology against Jews. Mm-hmm. So not yet the full-blown anti-Semitism that we'll get in the 20s and 30s, but... but, no, but Dreyfus Affair is happening, is, is happening right, in France, yeah, I think yeah. it's maybe three years later, 1906, 07, yeah. something like that. So we're, we're, we're just at that tipping point of mm. 20th century anti-Semitism. Um, and, and so Bloom, he doesn't have that kind of um, open anti-Semitism against him, but it's like he's not quite mm-hmm. one of the guys, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a convert, so he technically he is has a Christian mother and and is uh, converted twice, I think, to Protestantism and then Catholic, uh, and then mm. the Catholic Church. We don't know that at this point, so uh, he's not a practicing Jew, but he's culturally Jewish and and is you know treated as different. Right, and and I've, um, well, this this is another question that we had, and I think we should get to um, before before we finish talking about this episode. But his kind of sensitivity to the world and his kindness. Mm. Um, what do you think, uh, Adam Lex, that Bloom can teach us? about life and death what does this episode teach us about life and death wow this episode particularly well you know there's there's a degree in which bloom's reaction is very unusual to a funeral right you know in a Mm. funeral everyone else's reaction is let's do what people always do you know we'll show up we wear the dark clothes we go to get drunk after (laughs) you know take the day off work um you know kind of kibitz and and you know talk bullshit on the way to the funeral do the cross and the say the prayers and then and then go home. But, you know, showing up is kind of the, the pious act. Whereas Bloom is thinking constantly about the, the meaning of things, what it's like to be dead, uh, all of the dead bodies that, you know, must be piled up in the cemetery. Could, you mm. know, could we put that to better, you know, use? Um, Re- recalling, of course, the graveyard scene in Hamlet. Reca- recalling right. the graveyard scene yeah, yeah, yeah. in ha- Hamlet. He sees all of these uh, animals going back to the, to the octopus again. <laughs> uh, he sees all of these steers uh, mm. these uh, these cows being led off to the slaughterhouse, they're temporarily mm. kind of stopped, and they, he makes a very civic-minded, uh, you know, a comment about you know we should really create a public transport. We could create create a tram uh, <laughs> out to the edge of the city. So he's already thinking about you know urban uh, public transportation, uh, and uh, but of course these are animals led out to be slaughtered mm-hmm. um, in the way that they're also going out to to bury uh, to bury a body. And um, so Bloom is engaging in a in a much deeper way, um, mm-hmm. thinking practically as a citizen uh, about death and about the role of death in society, but also really grappling with death as a as a fact of, of human life, but something that can be, you know, potentially um, uh, that trauma can potentially be overcome. Mm. And also, I mean, we had mentioned this before we, we started recording, too, but he's not only thinking, right, Lex, you had mentioned that he's also collecting money uh for the family of the mm. deceased right so in the spirit of well and a question that i have and i really want to return to this in, in the next episode but where do all these thoughts lead us do they lead mm. us to any kind of concrete action so we'd mentioned in the first mm. episode is democracy possible you know that this is collective action possible and certainly it's a joy reading someone's dream of consciousness but this kind of like radical mm. individualism um I worry, especially nowadays, um, in some ways it's all for naught. But you mm. you argued against that. I, I, I want to I, I'm inspired by Bloom and inspired by Joyce to think differently about what democracy is and, and could be. That of course we want to take part in the great collective action and well, action. It, 
or action in general. But he he I think in in his kindness that he's he's systematically showing throughout the day, whether it's visiting Mina Porfoy, uh, the the woman in labor, uh, taking the collection for Dignam's kids, serving his his wife, you know, breakfast. Um, uh, you know, he does a little favor to this guy McCoy. He doesn't even mm-hmm. like all that much. McCoy says, look, I can't make it to the funeral. Can you put my name down as if I was there? Yeah, a little favor to this guy. Yeah. So, I mean, these little these little acts, that adds up to something. Mm-hmm. And and I think the problem with, with, one of the problems with democracy as we've experienced it, this electoral party-based democracy mm-hmm. is that we think in terms of grand narratives. You know, we have to like, you know, get rid of all government or universal health care or, or and, and some of those goals are, are, are important, but it, it, it causes us to forget get the role of simple kindness and curiosity we get back to these you know kindly curiously Mm -hmm. if we could be a little bit kinder and see the world through other people's eyes that is what would make the kind of day-to-day actions um you know opening the door for someone helping someone who needs a hand that is i think the true worth of a community i mean i think i think the um you know what is essentially all for now are these big gestures these big actions if and now this has been repeated so many times it's almost become a cliche but if you don't live the way you want the world to be like if you are so committed to an ideology or an idea that you are willing to sacrifice people to trample over people in order to bring that idea that you hold sacred to to fruition then something is going wrong and what i think we can learn from Bloom, who, as we've already said in this episode, is in many ways a, a deeply flawed hum, human being in the fact in in the same way that all human beings are. But he is, I think, living the way he would want the world mm. to be, which mm. is essentially mm. trying his best to be decent. And, and mm. this goes back to, to, to Aristotle, who you mentioned at the beginning. And mm. I really I want to make this point because I, I totally missed it. Um, uh, this is not necessarily from this particular section. Um, but again, in kind of the spirit of we are what we repeatedly do, excellent right. yeah, then, yeah. excellence then is not an act, but a habit. A habit. It's a mm-hmm. habit. Exactly. Um, but this is another point that Aristotle makes that Joyce is definitely thinking about. And I think it's something to keep in mind as we move forward here, which is what is the difference between fiction and history? Because it seems mm. to me that um, in some sense, acts uh, can kind of foreclose uh, various possibilities in a way that fiction keeps open mm. the, the the potential for possibilities. Um, so I wanted to read this section. This is in some way a noticeable, but it's a huge noticeable and it's a huge kind of theme um, that I would like to return to over the course of this uh, season. Um, so this is on page 30. And this is Joyce meditating on the difference between history and fiction. Uh, so the passage goes at the top. Had Pyrrhus not fallen by a Bedlin's hand in Argos, or Julius Caesar had not been knifed to death, they are not to be thought away. Time has branded them and fettered. They are lodged in the room of infinite possibilities they have ousted. But can those have been possible seeing that they never were? Or was that only possible which came to pass? Weave, weaver of the wind. So first of all, Mm. we have this reference to the Odyssey because Penelope, of course, is the ultimate weaver. But we also have this sense that uh, was the only thing that's possible was the thing that actually happened, which is to say the way that history played out, the way that one acted. And I think Joyce um, is holding up the possibility here between uh, history on the one hand and and poetics, uh, kind of, you know, uh, poetry, drama, literature on the other. And this is from uh, the footnote based on that section um, speaking about this kind of distinction between the two. So 
Um, from what we have said, it will be seen that the poet's function is to describe not the thing that has happened, but a kind of thing that might happen, i.e. what is possible as being probable or necessary. The distinction between historian and poet consists really in this. The one describes the thing that has been and the other a kind of thing that might be. And mm -hmm. I think it's that space of the thing that might be um, mm. that is so kind of radical. And that could make democracy possible. Voila. <laughs> um, maybe we give the last word to Bloom as we as we wrap up. Go for it. Um, so um, he finishes the the ceremony. He's still kind of a marginal outsider. He tries to help um, this guy, John Henry Menton. Menton remembers a game of bowls he lost to Bloom 16 years before and, and snubs him. Um, trauma rattling trauma around. Trauma rattling around. <laughs> and Bloom, in his inner monologue, um, there's another world after death named hell. I do not like that other world, she wrote. He's remembering the letter that Martha wrote him where he, she means to say, I do not like the other word, but she says the other world. So he's playing off this little little uh, glitch. There is another world after death named hell. I do not like that other world, she wrote. No more do I. Plenty to see and hear and feel yet. Feel live, warm beings near you. Let them sleep in their maggoty beds. They're not going to get me this innings. Warm beds, warm full-blooded life. Wow. Now, as Lex packs his bag and runs off to, to the, the Gare de Lyon, yeah. I will just give you a quick rundown of the readers you've got coming up for the uh, Lotus Eaters in Hades. So, well, for Calypso, as I said earlier, you've already heard Eddie Izzard, Lola Peplo and Nathan Englander. For uh, Lotus Eaters, we have the wonderful novelist Joe Dunthorne reading the first section, then the musician Kate Stables, better known as This Is The Kit, reading the second part, followed by... Uh, the great novelist uh, Jared McGuinness closing the Lotus Eaters for us. Then as we move on to Hades, we have a great lineup again for you. So Nicholson Baker, the wonderful American novelist beginning Hades for us, followed by uh, the poet Richard Barnett, the novelist Amy Sackville, Chigozi Obioma, and finally finishing with the literary critic Erica Wagner. So that is the lineup How exciting. You have between the next Bloomcast. We will be back <laughs> on Saturday, the 26th of February. Until then, happy reading. A très bientôt. <laughs> Take care, Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses. The text was provided by our partners at Penguin Classics, whose cloth-bound centenary edition of Ulysses is available now from your local independent bookshop. You can also order it from our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, and get your copy shipped from Paris, inked with the famous Shakespeare and Company stamp. If you're enjoying these free readings and want to show your support, the best way is to become a subscriber to our author interview podcast on Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. In addition to helping fund all the bookshop's non-profit activities, you'll get even more from Kilometre Zero in the form of exclusive bonus episodes recorded in-store and around Paris. Find out more in the episode notes or at shakespeareandcompany.com. Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses was conceived and produced at Shakespeare and Company in Paris by me, Adam Biles, in collaboration with our Bloomsday MC, Professor Lex Paulson. Original music is by Alex Fryman, with Flora Hibbard on vocals and production by Adrien Chicot. We'd like to thank all our readers, our partners Hay Festival and Penguin Classics, and you, of course, for listening. Here we go, guys. Bloomcast number two. Bloomcast number two. What was that? <laughs> Improv. <laughs> yes, and. Yes. <laughs> Christ. Okay. Well, I think we have that our Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs>